exactly, but certainly a very uh, substantial growth of interest in doing uh, doctoral research on Iran. Uh, and this came to an end, uh, of course, in the, uh, with the Iranian revolution. And of the people who did their uh, doctoral work there uh, in the 60s and 70s, there was a particularly interested interest in doing tribal studies so that we have good monographs on, uh, on the Qashqai, on the Shah Savan, on the Turkmen, on the uh, Lurs, on the Bakhtiari, on you know, a whole bunch of tribes, uh, most of them uh, pastoral nomads. Uh, and out of this uh, came a number of um, interesting ideas about how you think about uh, nomads in the history of Iran. Uh, the dynasty that had ruled in the late 18th and 19th century and early 20th century, the, the dynasty of the Qajars, had originated as a nomadic, as a nomadic tribe. Uh, their predecessors, the Safavids, had been supported by nomadic tribes. The uh, Tiborids and before them the Mongols uh, had been based on nomadic tribes. Uh, the Khwarezm Shahs and the Seljuks all based on the power of nomadic tribes. And so when people talked about nomadism in Iran, it seemed to make a great deal of um, a great deal of sense in terms of the long sweep of Iranian history. But for the uh, period that I've been talking about for the last uh, two, three weeks, um, nomadic tribes don't play much of a role. And it is extremely difficult to find continuities between uh, nomadic tribes uh, in Iran in the period, uh, let us say, after 1000, uh, you know, with the tribes that existed uh, in earlier times um, when they had contributed to uh, the uh, rise of the Parthian dynasty and had played a role in eastern Iran, particularly with the Scythians and others. When you look at certain of the uh, tribally organized groups of today that, uh, that claim a continuity, uh, here the Kurds would be, uh, would be a most distinctive. Uh, one of the problems of the medieval period of Iranian history is that uh, the word for, for Kurds, which usually shows up um, in the Arabic plural Akrad, uh, seems to simply be a generic word for nomad, uh, rather than an, uh, an ethnic uh, term. Although no one is absolutely sure, but you'll find the Akrad are here and the Akrad are there. And there's another generic word for uh, nomad, um, Kuch, uh, often showing up in the rhyming phrase, uh, Kuch Baluch, 
It seems to be a term that is more common in southern uh, uh, Iran. Uh, is a modern word for nomad in Afghanistan. And that seems to be associated with the Baluch uh, people of modern times. But you can't find a uh, uh, much in the way of a linear uh, you know, narrative that would kind of connect the actual Baluch tribes of southern Iran today or the Kurds of today with those of the pre-Islamic period. So, uh, so we have a situation where Iran, having had uh, nomadism important in the original migration of uh, Iranian speakers uh, from Central Asia, uh, then you go through a series of dynasties uh, that to some degree uh, you have nomadic groups around. Then you get to the Sassanid period and the Islamic period, and the role of nomads seems to diminish uh, uh, to a, in a striking fashion. And then the nomads reappear uh, in the ten hundreds. Uh, the dynamic of that is, uh, is something that, uh, that needs to be explored. And I'm going to talk a little bit today about the, uh, the coming of the Turks because they are so central to the later uh, story of nomadism in Iran. The reason I talk about nomadism categorically to start with rather than simply the Turks is that <coughs> the nomadic groups that are uh, common in later Iranian history are not all Turkish. Uh, so that the, uh, the Kurds uh, are not uh, uh, Turkish. Kurdish is related to Persian as a, an Iranian language. And the same thing with the, uh, with the Baluch. So it isn't simply a matter of Turks coming into Iran, uh, but it's also a matter of nomads uh, becoming uh, generally more common. There was a uh, hypothesis hinted at, though never formally stated, by the uh, social historian of the last generation, a Frenchman named uh, Claude Cahen, uh, where he talked about the 11th century is the century of the nomads. And he said, you know, Morocco, Tunisia, uh, northern Mesopotamia, Iran, Central Asia. 11th century is just full of nomads. I wonder if there's a reason that that's, that's a hypothesis part of it. I wonder if there's a reason why this, uh, this, uh, this occurred. And uh, I've been puzzling over that for, uh, for many, many, many years. And I think that, in fact, it's a coincidence. However, uh, it may not be, and it may relate to, uh, to some things that are going on, uh, not so much in the nomadic world as in the, uh, as in the, uh, the world of, uh, of the organized state. Um, there is a, there are two competing theories of nomadism that both arise from studies done of the relationship between the state and nomads in China. Uh, one of them uh, was by um, uh, 
That's the name. Oh, uh, the name's not terribly important. One of them said that that uh, strong nomadic states uh, alternate uh, with strong central states. That when the central state is strong, uh, the, nom- they, the, the, the armies of the central state state provide rural security. They beat up the nomads and kept them and drive them into the desert of the mountains. And the nomads play a uh, a minor role. Uh, and um, he tried to demonstrate that in Chinese history. Uh, then, uh, much more recently, uh, there was a theory saying that that's exactly wrong and that strong nomads coincide with a strong state. And the argument there was that uh, people who are living in... Uh, at low levels of economic exploitation uh, in a semi-arid or arid uh, countryside really don't need much in the way of um, a political organization. The population is too, uh, is too uh, widely dispersed. Uh, the, ec- the level of economic t- uh, activity is too low. And so uh, tribes uh, don't get together to you know, field armies and create empires. And this argument uh, said that what happens is that when the state becomes strong and tries to collect taxes from uh, people in the uh, in these dispersed rural areas, uh, the resistance to the uh, to the state causes the tribes to coalesce uh, and uh, prompts them into becoming uh, a military force. Uh, so uh, there you had two competing theories, both of them based on the relationship between the Chinese state and the nomads of to the north and to the northwest of China. Uh, and uh, so you, you know, there are no general theories that anyone has come up with with respect to nomads uh, in the uh, in the Middle East uh, that would tend to support or uh, or go against either of these theories. There is one geographer who has produced a book, a uh, French geographer, Xavier de Plagnol, produced a book called uh, uh, The Geographic Foundations of uh, History of Islam, Les Fondements Géographiques de l'Islam. And de Plagnol uh, spent his time in the book. <coughs> Uh, arguing that there's a huge that the, the, the crucial thing is not uh, is not organization of nomads into tribes, but rather what livestock they herd. And so he says he argues that there's a profound difference between uh, camel nomads in Arabia and horse nomads in Central Asia, because the density, the size of the herds, and the density of population is much greater in the grasslands. Uh, where you have uh, abundant pasture uh, than it is in the uh, in the desert lands uh, of Arabia. So he says that when the that it is much easier and more commonplace for horse nomads to band together and field armies and create states than it is for camel nomads. Uh, since we only had one group of camel nomads to talk about and they happened to form the biggest state, it was hard to, to really make that 
argument stick, but Duplagnol was an influential geographer, and his book still is read from time to time. So we're kind of at a dearth of theory with respect to the role of nomads. Now what I am going to, what I argue in this new book, which I delivered finally this morning to the press after a kind of sleepless night, the argument of the book, which you will find in the remaining portions of it for you to read, is that the nomads in Iran become important in the context of a change in the climate. The idea that there is a climatic factor is an old idea. A man named Ellsworth Huntington, back in the early 20th century, wrote a book entitled The Pulse of Asia, which he said that whenever you see a great mass of horsemen crossing Central Asia and invading Europe, you trace it back and you find that it has to do with climate in Mongolia or northwest China, and that when the climate deteriorates, the horsemen ride off and conquer everybody. And then when the climate becomes better, the horsemen stay home. He based this on analyses of what he argued was a series of moist and dry conditions indicated by lakes in Xinjiang province, northwest part of China. And the book is generally regarded as crazy. No one else has been able to analyze these various levels of lakes being large or small and come to the same conclusions. So that was considered to be a dead end. And it raised a great deal of wariness about alleging that there was some sort of climatic change, to the point that if you talk about climate change, you're really right on the fringe of being really, really cuckoo, and you're not going to necessarily get much attention. If you look at the backside of this handout, you have a rather poorly reproduced graph. And what it is is a graph of the thickness of tree rings found in a series of Siberian pine trees at a site in western Mongolia. The site Sologotendava, if that's how it's pronounced. If anyone has a better understanding of Mongolian pronunciation, I'd be happy to abandon mine for yours. The researchers who produced this at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory here at Columbia say that 
up to the year 800, uh, they regard the data uh, in, this, uh, in this series as robust, uh, by which they mean that they have several different trees that they can overlap and show that they're following the same uh, tendency. But from, uh, from 800 to 400, I think they only have one tree. So they have less confidence in the, uh, uh, in the value of that. What, uh, what I'm looking at uh, in particular is what you find right above the year 1000, uh, going down to, um, uh, to the year 1200. And that is a, uh, a significant uh, reduction in the uh, thickness of tree rings. And reduction in thickness of tree rings is associated by, uh, by the climatologists who work on tree rings with the reduction in moisture and a reduction in temperature. So they argue that this decline, starting in the year 1000 and going for maybe 130 years or so, uh, that this decline is um, indicative of a sustained period of cold uh, winters. What makes this a, uh, a particularly uh, striking finding are two things. First of all, is that it is the opposite of what is understood of the climate history of Europe. So that uh, the period between 900 and 1200 in Europe uh, is a period of uh, an extensive period of very high temperatures uh, by European standards. And it's uh, so sustained and supported by so many different types of uh, data that it's referred to as the medieval warm period. Uh, people began studying it when they started to look at uh, record, uh, records of medieval history indicating that things were once a good deal warmer uh, in Europe uh, than they became uh, in later uh, centuries. Uh, and the hallmark uh, Year, the hallmark indicators here were uh, the growing of uh, wine grapes in Britain, uh, and then wine disappears from Britain later on. The settlement of Iceland and Newfoundland uh, by, the, uh, by the Vikings, who then eventually uh, abandoned Newfoundland and uh, experienced much, much colder conditions in Iceland and Greenland. Uh, the growth of uh, temperate... Uh, uh, grains in the northern Baltic area, and to say wheat in Estonia, uh, and a whole bunch of things. Um, and the idea of a medieval warm period became uh, one of the first uh, foci of, of climate history as people began to study uh, climate history. The argument came to be made that it was a hemisphere-wide phenomenon and perhaps a global phenomenon. I say that maybe the entire globe became uh, warmer during this period of time. And as times go on, people have used more and more um, uh, data sources, um, ice cores in Greenland or tree ring analyses um, here and there around the world. 
And this has been a very central uh, discussion in the, uh, in the current debates on, uh, on global warming. Uh, because if, as you see at the very right end of this graph, you have an extraordinary, absolutely unprecedented degree of warming indicated in Western Mongolia uh, for the period um, after 1900 down to, down to the present, If this warming is the result of human activities, uh, whether it's uh, greenhouse gases or, or uh, deforestation or whatever you may have, it may be simply a, a fresh example of warming that occurred because of human activities at some earlier point. And the point usually compared uh, is, the, uh, uh, is the medieval warm period. So people say, well, what did people do uh, in the medieval period that caused global warming? And how does that relate to, uh, to the global warming that is uh, debated today? So they say, well, in the medieval period, you had a big growth in population, and that led to more deforestation, more burning of charcoal, more release of uh, you know, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and so forth and so on. But one of the problems uh, with this notion is that it assumed that you had a warming that occurred uh, on a global scale, or at least on a hemisphere scale. So what is striking about this, uh, this particular graph from, uh, from Mongolia is that you have a, uh, indicate a substantial uh, chilling of the climate uh, in the middle of what is supposed to be uh, a warm period. The idea of a warm period had originated as people, as I mentioned, found these uh, bits of data from European history. And uh, from my point of view, if the historians of 75 years ago had focused on studying the Middle East instead of studying Europe, they would have found all sorts of indications of a cold period because this is a graph that shows uh, the idea that there is a chilling. But in fact, you have uh, many different uh, instances of very cold weather uh, in, uh, in the northern Middle East, uh, primarily falling into two periods. One of them is the year 920 to 945 or so, 943. And the second one starting around the year 1007 and going apparently for, uh, for decades. Uh, the evidence that is most abundant comes from the city of Baghdad. Uh, as the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate, it produced a great deal of writing. And among the writers, you had people who talked a lot about, uh, about life in Baghdad itself. And so you have chronicles that detail uh, snowfalls, uh, freezes, um, uh, the killing of fruit trees by cold, and so forth and so on. And I cite a whole bunch of these uh, quotations in my, uh, in my manuscript. And certainly they are extraordinary, given that in Baghdad today, uh, nobody expects it to snow and they certainly don't expect 20 inches of snow in November, uh, 
rather you might get snow flurries for a few hours in January or February. But as you go back to, uh, to the first decade of the 10 hundreds, you'll have really extraordinary uh, examples of cold uh, in Baghdad. Baghdad being at sort of the southern edge of where this cold took place. Presumably it's even colder uh, once you get into northern uh, Mesopotamia and northern Iran and eastern uh, Turkey. The reason it's colder as you go farther north, of course this is not counterintuitive, very often we think that as you go farther north in the northern hemisphere it will get colder, so it's, it, it, it fits. But it also has to do with, uh, with the primary weather determinant for, um, uh, for the northern Middle East uh, that reappears every year. And this is called the Siberian High. The Siberian High is an area of high air pressure that builds up every winter uh, in Siberia, Western Mongolia, you know, in the heart of Inner Asia. Uh, it's usually explained as being so uh, invariable and intense because the height of the, of the um, Himalaya Mountains and uh, the other mountains ringing Tibet is so great that air flows from India and from Southern Asia in, gen in general do not cross those mountains. And so you don't have any ameliorative effect coming from the south. So every winter you get a high pressure uh, area. A high pressure area uh, produces uh, an anti-cyclone. Uh, a cyclone is a, is a swirling weather, weather pattern uh, that swirls in a counterclockwise direction in the northern hemisphere, in a clockwise direction in the southern hemisphere. An anticyclone is currents of air that go in a clockwise direction around, uh, uh, around the high pressure. So if here's your high pressure area. You have um, air currents like this going around it. Uh, these do not go over the mountains down into southern Asia, but rather they cover all of Siberia uh, and uh, Mongolia and the, um, the, uh, uh, the Islamic republics that were formerly part of the uh, Soviet Union in Central Asia. And it appears that the, uh, the intensity of the Siberian high is substantially variable. It, it's there every winter. And indeed, uh, I believe that the coldest temperatures on Earth have been recorded uh, in Siberia. I'm not sure of that. But the, uh, you always get the Siberian high. So if it comes to, <coughs> it sweeps out of the Northeast into Iran, across Iran, across Iraq, and up uh, into Eastern Turkey, and then moves back again across Russia. So what you expect is that the climate that is affected by the Siberian high will be parallel between Iran, Eastern Turkey, and uh, Ukraine, Russia, and then going back uh, again to the east. What happens in the, 
in Mesopotamia is that uh, European um, low pressure areas in the winter move uh, from west to east uh, across Europe and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, these low pressure areas, which are uh, which are cyclones uh, rotating counterclockwise, um, uh, draw in air because they're low pressure. Then you know, the, the pressure is low, and so it's drawing in winds. And those winds, when they come over the seas, are very moist, and so these are storm centers. And the storm centers uh, that cross Europe every winter uh, either cross northern Europe or they cross uh, southern Europe and the Mediterranean. And which one they cross depends upon uh, an alternation between two high-pressure zones in the Atlantic Ocean. One of them is around the Azores Mountains, uh, Azor Islands west of Portugal. The other is around Iceland. Uh, people have studied the relationship of high pressure in Iceland to high pressure in the Azores over a substantial period of time. And they've discovered something they call the North Atlantic Oscillation, which on a fairly regular basis, something like 11-year cycle, uh, you will have storms uh, when the uh, when the high pressure is strong off Portugal, the storm tracks go across northern Europe and create um, uh, severe winters in uh, Britain, uh, the North Sea, Holland, Scandinavia, Germany. And when the pressure is high off of Iceland, uh, then the storm tracks uh, go south and they come across and have uh, substantial uh, storm systems that go into uh, Spain, southern France, Italy, and so forth. And those that are on the southern part of the oscillation extend further to the Middle East, and they're the primary source of rainfall uh, in the Middle East. I'd say every year when you get uh, rain or snow in Lebanon or Israel or uh, uh, Jordan, uh, it's coming from these storm cells uh, that are coming, uh, going across the Mediterranean. You know, Southern Europe has a lot of moisture, then the Middle East will have some moisture. If the moisture is going primarily across Northern Europe, then the Middle East will have a drought. So that you have um, alternating cycles of drought and, uh, and rain uh, in the Middle East. But if the high pressure area from Siberia uh, is very strong, then uh, it keeps the low pressure from, from entering the area. So that uh, you can have uh, drought, accompanying a high pressure, uh, or you can have severe storms if they do uh, reach into the area. So um, we have no, no detail on how the Siberian high interacts on a regular basis with either the northern European storm tracks or the southern European storm tracks, but it appears that this is what is involved in this, uh, in this cooling period uh, that starts in, in, in the early 10 hundreds, uh, that you have a, um, not every year, but that you have uh, repeated years, frequent years, of very high pressure uh, that sometimes uh, is accompanied by, um, uh, by snow. Um, 
but more commonly, it is simply cold. When it gets cold in the winter, this has a particularly strong effect on winter crops. There have been studies done in recent times in southwest Turkey, in the area known as the Çukurova, about the sensitivity of wheat and corn, but you didn't have any corn in the medieval period, so primarily wheat. The sensitivity of wheat to cold winter weather. And it appears that there's a substantial effect that you have when the winter is colder than is anticipated because the temperature of the soil at the time that the wheat grains that were planted in November begin to sprout in March, the temperature of the soil, if it is below a crucial level, I think it's six degrees centigrade, you simply don't get a very good yield. So when you have a cold winter, it isn't what you expect with a cold winter in Europe or in North America where we tend to have mostly summer crops, but rather a cold winter can cause a low harvest because the winter grains will come in in a less abundant fashion. So when you're looking at a cold period, which is what I believe shows up in this graph, you're probably looking at a reduction in the agricultural yields in the northern Middle East. If you have a substantial surplus, either stored from earlier years or you simply have good efficient farms that produce substantially more than you need each year, then a change in the yield might not be terribly crucial. But what I was arguing last week is that in the course of the urbanization of Iran, the proportion of the population that moved from being involved in agricultural production, that is say people living in farming villages, to living in cities where despite the fact that you had gardens around cities, nevertheless most of the people living in the city were not primary food producers. So you have a movement of a greater proportion of the population into non-agricultural urban life and a movement of agricultural workers in the countryside from the production of food to the production of fiber in the form of cotton. And what I argued was that in the course of the 900s, as cities began to approach their maximum, which they reached seemingly by the year 1000, where the largest cities are in the 100 to 200,000 population range, the surplus that Iran had began to become very, very tenuous. There simply was not a large enough agricultural output 
to sustain these cities in bad years. But of course people hadn't had bad years because in the 800s to the 900s, except for the period from 920 to 943 or so, uh, it had been fairly consistently warm. So you had two things that were coming together uh, at the beginning of the 10 hundreds. One of them was urbanization and a um, skewed distribution of the population, uh, making it more and more dependent uh, for the urban population, um, more and more dependent upon a regular uh, uh, surplus of food production. Uh, plus a change in the climate. So the vulnerability of the urban society of Iran uh, to, uh, to this climate change was, uh, was unusually great. I mean, the degree of the climate change doesn't appear to have been, uh, you know, catastrophic in every year. It was the fragility of the balance between uh, urban life and, uh, and food production. That seems to have been uh, crucial here. So that starting in the 10 hundreds, in the early 10 hundreds, we have more and more frequent reports of crop failure, uh, usually, associate, usually associated explicitly with cold and sometimes often uh, and sometimes also with drought, and increasing reports of famine. Uh, these famine reports tend to be from cities, uh, and increasing reports of epidemic diseases, which are, uh, which are associated uh, with famine. Uh, historians now who study the Black Death in Europe very commonly argue, particularly for Italy, that the, uh, that the impact of the Black Death in Italy was increased by the fact that population growth had lowered the nutrition level of, uh, of the general Italian population because they were outgrowing their food supplies. So what I believe happened is that Iran began to outgrow its food supplies uh, in the 10 hundreds uh, and go into a period of, um, of uh, economic uh, or at least of agricultural decline. I pointed out in an earlier lecture that one of the indicators of this is the decrease in the rate of taxation for food grains comparing the year 900 to the year 800. That the, uh, you have a decrease of 80 to 90 percent in the tax being paid for people who are uh, planting uh, wheat and barley, uh, which appears to me to be a an effort on the part of the government to uh, to stimulate uh, the growth of, of food grains uh, through taxation policy. Um, we know precisely that $700 billion was actually devoted to this, but uh, how it was spent, we have no record. It's, it's one of those odd things in history that $700 billion is simply the number that comes up under these circumstances. Um, Okay, uh, this may not have, have affected cotton directly. That is to say that even though you would think if it gets cold, you're going to stop growing cotton. Well, no, because this is an indicator primarily of cold winters. 
whereas the, uh, the summer may still have been long enough to grow cotton if you had enough water. Uh, on the other hand, as the value of food grains goes up, uh, and as winter wheat may have become less reliable, it's, it's possible, if not likely, but probably likely as well, that uh, people who had been farming cotton in the 800s and 900s began to grow summer wheat uh, because the uh, you know, wheat was now more valuable. Uh, it's hard to tell. If you look at uh, villages irrigated by um, Kanat, uh in the 1950s, um, you'll find about half of them are grain-growing villages and grow winter uh, and grow summer grain rather than winter grain. So, uh, so cotton may have fallen out of favor, uh, uh, partly because of the uh, of the increased need for for food grains. Uh, now, what does this have to do with nomadism? The there are a number of uh, studies that have looked at uh, how governments uh, in the medieval period uh, uh, handle uh, rural taxation issues. Uh, when you have a well-organized uh, government in the Middle East, say under the Abbasid Caliphate and earlier under the, uh, the Byzantines and the Sassanids, the, uh, the government would send out people whose job it was to uh, determine the extent of the, uh, of the agricultural land uh, and estimate the yield of the land and uh, assign taxes uh, based on that estimate. And we have various instances where people would protest that they're their land was assessed at who, to, a, to a high tax and so forth, exactly as you would have now. The assessors uh, will use a number of different uh, measures to try and determine how much tax the, uh, uh, should, be, uh, should be charged. And then the tax collectors would go out and try and collect the amount of tax that was, uh, that was indicated. What we know is that in the late 800s, but even more in the 900s, uh, the tax base of the Abbasid Caliphate, whether in Iraq, in it, both in, it, in, in Iraq and its uh, heartland, uh, and in the outlying areas that it still collected taxes from, which included uh, a shrinking part of Iran as parts of Iran came under independent dynasties, we know that the taxes collected uh, by the central government and sent to Baghdad uh, shrank. Uh, catastrophically. Uh, we don't have the actual tax records, but rather um, reports and chronicles that give you uh, lump sums for how much tax was collected in, uh, in certain years. But pretty much everyone who's, who's looked at this material Agrees that the the tax base of the Abbasid Caliphate uh, shrank considerably uh, in the 900s to the extent 
that uh, by, um, say, in the early decades of the 900s, uh, the government was no longer able to pay the army. Seems to have been the case even in the late 800s. Uh, you know, it comes and goes. Uh, what happens when you cannot pay the army? Uh, well, what happens is that the army um, decides they need a new caliph. And so you have a, a number of very short caliphates, and you have actions taken by the army to, uh, to influence or determine who the next caliph will be. And typically what would happen is that some member of the Abbasid family would be approached by the military and said, if we make you the caliph, will you pay our back pay? And then uh, the caliph candidate who wants to be caliph, why they want to be caliph? I don't know why they want to be president of the U.S., I don't know. Um, but there's always somebody who wants to be in charge. Uh, so that the, um, uh, the candidate caliph would say, yes, I will give you a, a gift of back, you know, paying back, uh, back pay uh, if you make me the caliph. But, of course, this did not generate money. Uh, instead, it generated uh, a systematic extortion uh, on the part of, uh, of people who came into the office of caliph. So caliph would say, okay, if you make me the caliph, this would be the late 800s and the early 900s, if you make me the caliph, uh, I will uh, produce 20 million dirhams. What would happen is that the caliph would come into, uh, into office and he would dismiss the vizier and the other officials and those officials who were dismissed uh, would be arrested and they would be uh, uh, tied to a certain type of a framework and they would be beaten on the soles of their feet. Uh, That's called the bastinado. And they would be beaten until they told where they had hidden their money. And, you know, somebody beats you on the soles of your feet for half an hour and your feet are, you know, sore and red and swollen, and you say, oh, okay, 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 I remember now, there's a pot of gold coins, you know, under the fountain uh, in the courtyard of my home. So then you keep eating them, because if you found one pot, then there are probably other pots. And uh, so what they would do uh, was extort money from the, uh, from the officials of the former administration, and use that money to pay the military, uh, the gift that the military wanted, uh, but it didn't, it didn't increase the tax revenues. What it did produce was a kind of a two-party system where you had two different um, factions who would alternate in the role of chief administrator. And when you got into office, if you were the chief administrator, you became the vizier, uh, you and the members of your faction whom you would appoint would um, would be in charge of uh, extracting money from the uh, previous officials. There's actually a, a ministry of money, of many extraction for that purpose, a, min a ministry of extortion. And then you would use part of the money to pay the military, and then part of it you would put in a pot and bury in your garden because you were pretty sure that you would be out of office fairly soon. Uh, and that you were going to be beaten on the soles of your feet once you left office. 
there is a, uh, a monograph on this subject uh, written by um, Harold Bailey many, many years ago uh, called The Life and Times of Ali ibn Isa, the Good Vizier. And he was the head of one of the two factions. The Jarahids were the other faction. And it's really a, a, a classic study of, of uh, institutionalized corruption and how for a period of um, really close to a century, uh, the caliphate uh, became a, um, a beanbag tossed among factions of the military and factions of the bureaucracy. And that during this time, um, uh, you had this systematic extortion and the military never really got paid uh, all that it was owed uh, because there simply wasn't enough money, that the tax base had shrunk uh, too far. So what, what this demonstrates is that when you, when you have a shrinking uh, tax base, uh, it doesn't necessarily reduce the, um, uh, reduce the, 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 the gross quantity of entitlements. Uh, the army was, was an entitlement. They were, they were like retirees now. They were owed money by the government. And when we have an army of septuagenarians that goes into Washington and, you know, beats up the president until they get their social security checks, uh, then, you, then you'll see how this works. So the army uh, represented a huge entitlement. Uh, and uh, you had a shrinking tax base. They couldn't pay it. We have pathetic stories of, you know, caliphs who were wandering around their palaces trying to find metal... Uh, precious metal objects that they could melt down and give to the army so they could stay in office so they wouldn't be killed. Um, it, it's very sad, but, but this is all highly detailed in the uh, chronicles coming out of Baghdad. Uh, two, uh, two consequences of this. One is uh, that the army becomes increasingly focused on uh, who's in power and less, in fo and less focused on uh, maintaining order. Uh, but that comes and goes, uh, depending on who the commanders are and who the. Occasionally, you'll get a caliph who has some uh, some clout, uh, El Mu'tamid, for example. Um, but the other thing that happens is that in order to uh, to save money, uh, the old system of sending out tax assessors to measure the land, uh, make a fair assessment of the taxes, and then send out collectors to collect the taxes that comes to be um, too expensive. Because essentially what you have is the government assesses taxes, collects taxes, and the taxes they collect, they give to the army because that's their main entitlement. Um, well, the cost of sending out these assessors and collectors, why in the world should the state continue to bear this cost when the state can simply have the army collect its own pay? So you have a shift um, in the 900s uh, to an increasing reliance on something called ikta. Uh, this is from an Arabic verb meaning to cut. And what it means is that you have a, uh, an ikta is a portion of the income production of the state that has been severed from the overall revenues of the state and assigned to a particular 
beneficiary of a state salary. So that you give an iqtah to a military commander or a, a vizier or some other person who's entitled to money. Uh, and that person now has a responsibility for collecting the tax produced by the farmers on the iqtah. Now, the iqtah is usually going to be a, um, uh, an area of land. It might be an entire province. It might be a, uh, an estate. You, know, you have various sizes of iqtahs. Uh, the growth of the iqtah, the iqtah, incidentally, is uh, very commonly uh, uh, compared to a thief in Europe uh, in the sense that a thief in Europe supposedly was a, uh, a portion of land that uh, would be occupied by and pay taxes to a... Um, uh, a knight or lord serving under a king uh, and the revenues of that land would not go to the king. They would go directly to the, to the thief holder. Um, the iqtah doesn't appear to have been as systematically personalized as uh, you had supposedly in the feudal system in Europe. That is to say, initially, uh, the government may still have been collecting the taxes. But as time went on, it appears that the iqtah became more and more simply a license for an iqtah holder to go to the land and extract as much money as he could get. The issues of assessment, of measuring, of um, making the, uh, the tax extraction bearable for the population these things supposedly become less, I say supposedly because we really don't have detailed records of how this worked in practice, but historians have, have um, conjectured that what happened is that um, you had an increasing um, tendency on the part of the people who had these entitlements, the Iqtah holders, uh, to extract as much revenue as they could get from the land that, they were, that was assigned to them. Uh, it was also uh, known that an iqtah could change hands, particularly whenever you had a change of, uh, in the central government, a change of the, of the bureaucracy. So an iqtah holder is not the same thing as a landowner, uh, or even, for that matter, uh, the same thing as a, a manorial lord in Europe who could normally expect to hold a, uh, a portion of land um, assigned by a king or a duke uh, throughout their life and handed on to their offspring. An iqtah would apparently was more variable in terms of who held it, and therefore the impetus on the part of the iqtah holder is estimated to be uh, primarily uh, wealth extraction rather than, um, than uh, taking measures to improve land and increase uh, production. So you have a number of historians have, have figured that what happens in the course of the 900s and after is that you get more and more pressure on the peasantry uh, living in the farming villages to produce taxes 
um, in order to address the, uh, uh, the revenue problems uh, of the state. Now, what happens when the amount of revenue being extracted is greater than, uh, than the villagers can sustain? Uh, and this is where you get to the issue of nomadization. There have been uh, studies made in the 20th century of how do people who are not born nomads become nomads, and how are people who are uh, born nomads become settled people? Uh, Frederick Barth, um, a uh, Norwegian uh, anthropologist, is most noted for his, uh, for his uh, views on this that have been confirmed by other uh, people who were studying particularly Iranian tribes uh, in the, 20th, in the uh, 60s and 70s. Uh, <clears throat> Barr's view was that when the, when the tax burden becomes too high uh, so that farmers are not left enough of their produce to survive, uh, that the farmers take their livestock and disappear into the, uh, into the countryside. And they quit farming. And they become nomads. Now, this is possible because uh, in the, in the semi-arid conditions of the Middle East, the areas where you can farm are fairly limited. But the areas where you can pasture your livestock are fairly extensive. It's just that your livestock uh, require uh, very broad areas uh, to live. So it is possible for, um, for people in a village to simply uh, take their sheep and goats, go out to the countryside, and live on natural pasturage, quit farming, and then they become extremely difficult for the tax collectors to find. Uh, this is something that's been uh, widely observed in Egyptian history. Uh, in early modern times is the uh, uh, movement of, of uh, villagers into, uh, into nomadic conditions, fleeing uh, a tax regime. Uh, and uh, Barth argued that this is what occurs uh, time and again in Iran, that when you have an unfair uh, and oppressive tax regime, such as is indicated by the growth of the Ektah system, that more and more people uh, quit farming and become nomads. Uh, it's hard to tell to what degree the, uh, this occurred in the 11th century, in the 10 hundreds. The number of people who, who are nomads clearly increases. Uh, but normally they're described as being Turks or Turkmen. Uh, this, um, the, the words that occur um, you know, Turkmen uh, uh, Turkoman the men in the man are not they're not man so it isn't a man isn't a plural of man uh they're also called in Arabic uh, the Huz, meaning uh, this is a 
group of Turks, and the preferred term uh, by Turkologists is the Ulvas, uh, which refers to a, a uh, confederation of tribes, or at least a group of tribes. Uh, if you have nine of them, then you call them the Dokuzovas, the nine Ulvas. And then in Turkish, this uh, shows up as Oas uh, with a soft G. So you can find the references to Turkish tribes under a number of different terms, um, uh, primarily after the year 1000. Um, but this doesn't mean that all the people who become nomads uh, are Turks, are, are speakers of Turkish. As I say, uh, in this period of increased nomadization, we find uh, increasing references to, uh, to nomads who are not Turks, such as Kurds, uh, and to a lesser extent, Baluch. Uh, what Barth argued was that uh, when people go off to, you know, to give up farming and become herders of animals, they assimilate to whatever the nearest uh, band of, uh, of pastoral nomads is. And it makes no difference what language they speak. Um, the particular confederation that he was most interested in, which was in southwest Iran, it was called the Hamsa Confederacy, actually was a single confederacy of nomads, half of whom spoke Persian, half of whom spoke Arabic. Uh, they, were, they were not a... They didn't speak the same language, but they were still linked together politically in a confederacy. So what, what Barth is suggesting is that you can have an increase in the number of nomads <coughs> that doesn't come from immigration <coughs> and doesn't come from an ethnic shift per se, but that comes from a shift in the, uh, in the economy. Uh, if you had government measures that were proportional to the productive capacity of the countryside, uh, this wouldn't necessarily happen. But of course, that means that the government accepts and lives with uh, lower revenues. But since the government has obligations to the military and to other things, they can't accept and live with lower revenues. <clears throat> so the tendency is to extract uh, more and more wealth. It drives more and more people off the land and uh, into uh, into nomadic situations. So that you can have an area that rather suddenly in, you know, we're talking medieval history here, and we're not talking about hours or days, but you know, over a period of years, an area that suddenly becomes Turkish. And yet we don't see a lot of Turks. And this is, this is something of a problem. Uh, because they become referred to as Turks because the um, uh, those that are sort of uh, officially organized may be of Turkish origin, and they may all adopt the Turkish language, but they aren't necessarily all people who have immigrated from Central Asia. So this, I'm trying to elucidate here this, this problem of the coming of the Turks to the Middle East. Uh, when Turks begin to become the dominant uh, political actors from the 1030s onward down to today. 
there is a, there is, it's reasonable to think, oh, there must have been a whole lot of Turks coming into the Middle East. But it probably wasn't the case. In the first, in the first case, the number of Turks that could have come into the Middle East simply wasn't enormous. I mean, Central Asia does not have a tremendously dense population in pre-modern times because this is long grass prairie that doesn't grow crops. It's fairly low density population. And even though the Ovas disappear from Central Asia, other Turkish groups remain in Central Asia, Kipchaks and Karluks and so forth and so on. In other words, you don't have an emptying out of Central Asia into Iran. But rather you have certain discrete groups that come into Iran. But as they come into Iran and then move westward across Iran into northwestern Iran and into Turkey, they become more numerous. And that's the puzzling part, is that where did all the Turks come from? And why is it that the Turks in Central Asia look Chinese and the Turks in Turkey don't look Chinese? I mean, it's clear that you're having an ethnic merging within the nomadic sector that is taking place. In the same way that after the Arabs conquered Iran, you had an ethnic merging between Persians and Arabs. How many Arabs ever came into Iran? We don't know, but we're probably talking about, let's say, less than 500,000 Arabs came into Iran during the entire period of the conquest. That would be just an estimate. But there would have been several times that many Iranians. And over time, the Arabs intermarry with the Iranians, and then the Arabs in most areas simply disappear. With the Turks, a fairly limited number of Turks comes in, but over time, the number of Turks increases. So that northwestern Iran becomes overwhelmingly Turkish-speaking. And Anatolia, which prior to the coming of the Turks, had been a land where Greek and Armenian and a number of other languages are spoken, becomes predominantly Turkish-speaking. So the climate change fits this evolution fairly well. In other words, you already had, before the climate became cool, you already had pressure on the urban populations of Iran. You already had a reduction in taxes on grain. And you already were having growth in some areas, more in western Iran than eastern Iran, of the growth of Iqtas. So the pressure of population, not in absolute terms, but in the proportion of the population in the cities, was already becoming significant before the climate got bad. When the climate got bad, the likelihood is that the rulers tried to extract more and more taxes. 
This produced more and more people fleeing the land. Uh, and as groups of Turkish uh, pastoral nomads came into the area from the northeast, they became a center for, uh, for accumulating uh, these people who were refugees from the village uh, agricultural sector. Uh, who are the Turks? Uh, Turks become mentioned uh, in a significant fashion in Islamic history from the 830s onward, uh, and they are portrayed uh, primarily as people who come into uh, the purview of the caliphate, the caliphate in the uh, in the form of being slaves. Uh, the word uh, Mamluk is used, uh, and the word Glam is used. Mamluk uh, literally means something or someone who is owned. Uh, Malika is an Arabic root talk, you know, referring to ownership, but it's also a word for king, so you could also interpret it as, some, as someone who is kinged. Uh, Golam is usually translated simply as a young man or quaintly uh, in Orientalist diction as a page. You know, uh, exactly what a page is, um, you know, in the Orientalist model, I don't know. Uh, but you start to have large numbers of these people. And from the 830s on, they are they form units of the army, uh, particularly in uh, in Baghdad. Uh, but you also have Mamluks showing up elsewhere, and they are the ones who have the who become this uh, uh, this entitlement group, because they are fully employed uh, by the government um, as soldiers, and they are entitled to pay and lodging and uniforms and, and equipment, and if they don't get paid, uh, they have every right to uh, to demand their pay. But what is frequently pointed out in studies that are done of the Mamluks, uh, probably the best study on the early uh, Mamluks in Baghdad uh, is by a Matthew Gordon um, called The Clashing of a Thousand Swords. Uh, he says that the commanders of the early Mamluk regiments were mostly not slaves, but they were people who had come into government service, Turks who had come into government service in some non-slave capacity, but that over time uh, you had more and more slaves being purchased in Central Asia, brought to Baghdad, uh, put in the army, and uh, in some cases apparently uh, Turkish women brought in to be wives for the Mamluks and so forth. Um, there's a tendency of people to assume that the word Mamluk in the 800s means the same thing that it does later in the 1300s in Egypt and Syria, uh, which isn't uh, probably sound, but there's no point going into the details because they don't concern Iran in particular. But the uh, what is striking about these Turks who come in uh, in the 800s and the 900s is that they're coming in mostly individually, and in any case they're coming in in a more or less deracinated fashion in the sense that they're not parts of tribal groups. 
they are not living in the countryside. They are not organized as an economic unit. They are simply serving as uh, as military uh, as military professionals entitled to pay. So the big change that you get uh, at the beginning of the 10 hundreds is uh, not that you have Turks coming into Iran, but rather that you have units of Turkish uh, tribes coming in. Uh, the ruling family that is associated with the first uh, Turkish tribes to enter Iran is that of a man named Seljuk. Uh, I go into some detail in my manuscript um, about how the, the Uhuz associated with the Seljuks came in. If you look at this map that I've handed out, uh, it's dealing with the border zone between Iran and Turkmenistan uh, in the northeast of Iran. Uh, the two mountain ranges, the Kopet Da Mountains and the Bin Alud Mountains that are more or less just below the center of the map, uh, constitute the frontier area. The uh, area to the north of the Kopet Da Mountains uh, is the Karakum Desert. Uh, this desert extends pretty much all the way up to the Aral Sea uh, and from the Caspian uh, all the way over to the Oxus River uh, west to east. And then once you get across the Oxus River, you have another desert, the Kizilkum Desert, that extends uh, uh, still further to the northeast. In other words, there's a, a severe desert band that runs from the Caspian Sea all the way across this map, uh, north of the mountains. Uh, the Turks had been living north of this desert for hundreds of years, because as soon as you get up to Kazakhstan, uh, you're into the uh, into the the grassy steplands of, of Inner Asia. That is where uh, you have uh, Turkish tribes living for a very long period of time uh, and living primarily as horse nomads. What happens in the, uh, in the early 10 hundreds is that a group of those Oghuz Turkomans uh, ask permission to, uh, to resettle uh, on the southern edge of the Karakum Desert, and the, the, the towns noted here from west to east, Dehistan, Farava, Nassau, Abiverd, and Sarax, these are the specific places that they asked to settle. These are very crummy places. Uh, you have mountains to the south, desert to the north, and a very thin band of agricultural area. Uh, and no grasslands. So uh, it's not a good place for horse nomads to settle. But in two different episodes that we have details about, it is precisely in these areas. Uh, the, far, the west ones, Farava and Dehastan, are both clearly in the desert. Uh, this is where the Turks asked to settle. And what appears to be the key to this is that uh, the one chronicle that describes this 
says that they settle there as camel herders. And that appears to be the key to understanding why the Turks come into the area. It's that they are not typical horse herders from the grasslands of Central Asia. They are horse uh, breeders. They do fight on horseback. Uh, they are like the other Turks in that extent. But they have another job, which is that they breed camels. And in particular, it appears that they breed hybrid camels of the sort that I've talked about in this course before. They breed the bucht. Uh, so these are bucht breeders. Uh, and the reason they move south when the weather gets cold is because their camels will die if they remain in the cold weather because the geographical range of the one-hump camel that constituted the greatest portion of the herds of bush breeders, uh, uh, Turkmenistan is at the far, the far extreme of the uh, survivability range of uh, one-hump camels. And if they did not move south, they were going to lose their livestock. Uh, there's an anecdote from 921 about a, uh, an ambassador who goes up to uh, Khwarezm, if you see here at the RLC at the top of the map. And uh, it's bitterly cold. That's the first cold stamp. Uh, so cold that nobody's out in the street. And he hears a story about two men who go out to gather firewood and they're stuck out in the... Uh, uh, you know, in the brushy areas all night long. And when they wake up the next morning, all 12 of their camels have died uh, because it got too cold. Uh, so, you know, and we have a fair amount of really ambiguous information about the cold weather survivability of one of camels. Uh, I'll leave you to read about that. But that appears to be why the Turks first come. But once the Turks come in, then these other factors having to do with the... Uh, with nomadism as opposed to farming as means of survival in hard economic times and deteriorating climate, they become important in, uh, in multiplying the impact of having this new ethnic group in the Middle East. So I will continue on this on, on Thursday.